Well, now that I'm fully wired, I have to be careful about what I'm saying. And uh, therefore, I should start by thanking uh, all of you who joined us uh, this evening. Uh, my thanks are also to Roma for the uh, introduction, very welcoming introduction, and to uh, Dr. Abbas Milani, who uh, not only invited me to take part. Very sorry, I need to double check that we're audio recording. Sure. Have your many wires. Solid red light, is good? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So I need not to repeat what I've just said. No. No. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right then, um, and uh, Dr. Abbas Milani, not only for inviting me uh, to, uh, to Stanford University and to the uh, uh, program in Iranian studies, Magadam program in Iranian studies, for which I'm very thankful, uh, but also, as he told me, he has uh, actually reviewed this uh, book uh, that I'm very much hoping soon is going to appear in a very prestigious uh, uh, American publication. Um, he was also very generous in his uh, uh, review in Persian of my earlier book, The Pivot of the Universe, for which I'm also thankful. Um, I would start by uh, a lecture of probably about, hopefully, 40 to 50 minutes, though I do not promise you that I would be able to stop at 50 minutes. So anytime the uh, necessary warning is necessary, please uh, let, me, uh, let me know. Afterwards, I'm going to show you some slides as a kind of a trailer of what you would find in this book. And afterwards, there would be a question and answer. And eventually, if you are convinced, you may want to buy copies of the book. OK. Um, let me start. Uh, with the verse, uh, as it's often to, to customary in uh, any uh, kind of a uh, Persian presentation, um, with the verse this time by Rumi. And it just happened that they have actually used three verses from his uh, eternal, really, uh, epilogue, a uh, prologue to, to his uh, Masnavi. Um, and as you will see, he seemed to have had some preoccupation with how to organize his uh, six books of Masnavi. So uh, the first one that corresponds to what my uh, uh, challenge is ahead of me in this talk and this writing of this book is a verse. First, I read it in Persian. Then I translated it English. If you pour the ocean in a jug, how much does it take but a daily portion? So although the size of this book may, sound, may seem very thick and big, actually it may just be a jug, perhaps a little bit a larger jug, <laughs> but still it does not take the whole ocean of 500 years that I've tried to uh, put together or uh, try to cover in, 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 this, uh, in this book. Uh, and the daily portion or the daily ration that Rumi refers to, or as Persian would call him, Molana would refer to, um, 
as a matter of fact, perhaps it's the, my portion, if you consider that a day in the biblical sense could be a year, but as a matter of fact, it's much more than one year. It took me a while. I don't want to reveal much, perhaps two decades or more. <laughs> but, but as far as the reader is concerned, hopefully it consists of four, four parts. And uh, seasonally, each part can be read uh, in one season. So you hopefully would be able to finish it in a year. <laughs> OK, so that's as far as um, uh, the uh, actual task of trying to put as much as possible into one volume. When I first started, or when I first negotiated with my publisher, Yale University Press, the editor told me, we want a book from you that in some 300 pages or so, that so it can be actually used as a textbook, um, to answer one essential question. Why there was, in 1979, a revolution with a very strong religious Shi'i Islamic militant coloring when Iran went through more than seven decades or more of a process of secularization? How you would interpret, how you would address this question? Well, that was my initial task. But in the process, of course, as historians love to go back and look at deeper roots of uh, uh, any uh, question or any problematic, I actually started looking further backward. And uh, it was probably not an accident that I started with 1501, the beginning of the 16th century, the rise of the Safavid Empire as this departure point for the writing of this book. As I hope I would be able to explain in the course of the next 40, 50 minutes as to why uh, it is important to go back. A simple answer, of course, is that most of the studies about uh, modern Iran, including uh, uh, Michael Oxworthy's, uh, who is going to next week, uh, next week, is it? who is going to be a speaker actually makes, puts me in a more embarrassing position <laughs> because I'm competing with him <laughs> in terms of what he has written. He has written a one volume very ably, uh, history of uh, Iran, mostly modern Iran. Um, so, but most of the histories of modern Iran or most of the interpretation of modern Iran really starts with the 20th century, with uh, the constitutional revolution, Earlier on, it was with the Pahlavi dynasty, establishment of Pahlavi dynasty in 1921. Then a little bit earlier, um, with the constitutional revolution of 1906 onwards. And uh, if some historians wanted to be a little bit more generous, they would go back usually to the mid-19th century, early decades of the 19th century with the famous uh, uh, Qajar reformer, uh, Prince Abbas Mirza, uh, and his military reforms, perhaps also with the more tragic uh, end uh, to the story of modernism in the mid-19th century with Amir Kabir and Nasir Shah, to, uh, uh, with which 
I'm sure many of you are fairly familiar, and certainly there is plenty in this book about both these episodes of reform. However, uh, the task of starting at an earlier age was an attempt to try to uh, uh, detect or trace some long-term trends in Iran's history that uh, at least I believe, and I hope convincingly I, convincingly I have argued in this book, has a certain bearing of the way that Iran in the 19th and 20th century evolved, and why, in a sense, Iran has gone through this major convulsion in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, in effect, as I was writing this book, uh, and I was trying to summing it up, the uh, uh, other question, perhaps more long-term question, what European historians would like to refer to is this long durée, the history of a long period of time, came to my mind and preoccupied me is that why, in effect, it's a more existential question, if you like, why Iran actually survived as a country over the past 500 years and remained on the map of the world uh, pretty much more or less with some losses in its frontiers intact. And uh, that by itself is an important question since many countries in the world who had this long history or long memory of their own past never managed to survive into the uh, uh, 20th century or the latter part of the 20th century. A very good example of that is the Ottoman Empire, the neighboring empire of Iran, much more powerful, much more resourceful, much better populated, much uh, more powerful economy than Iran. And nevertheless, if you look at the map of today's world, Middle East, or they don't want to call themselves as part of the Middle East anyway, but if they, there is no Ottoman Empire, what disappeared is uh, what you see on the map as kind of a portion of that massive empire is today's Republic of Turkey. The same probably can be said about the eastern neighbor or southeastern neighbor of Iran, that is the, what in English language is referred to as the Mughal Empire of India, the, in Persian, the Gurkhanid Empire. Uh, that again was far more powerful, far more prosperous, one of the most prosperous empires of its own time in the early modern times. And that also in the process in the 18th century disappeared and turned into fragmented into many principalities and eventually was the victim of British colonialism that indeed wiped out a very existence of the um, Mughal Empire and took the history of the uh, Indian subcontinent in a very different direction. So Iran could have been the same kind of, a, uh, experienced the same kind of a process of disintegration. Certainly in the early decades of the 20th century, in the period of the First World War, uh, that nowadays many uh, Iranians or non-Iranians don't pay any attention. They even don't know that Iran was somewhat involved in the First World War. 
could have brought Iran to, or indeed brought Iran to the verge of uh, fragmentation and, uh, and uh, dissolution. Uh, however, somehow in miraculously, or at least on the surface miraculously, managed to survive. And that's not the only example. If you look further back, the uh, presence of the two great empires uh, that uh, in the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries dominated the northern and southern frontiers of Iran, that is the Russian Empire in the north and the British Empire in the Persian Gulf and southeastern Iran, were far more powerful, far more resourceful in every possible respect, military, economic, technological, than Iran. And they could have, uh, in effect, uh, at some stage, as they did indeed compromise the sovereignty of many of the countries that came uh, into, in between the two empires, Iran could have been also another example of that kind of uh, uh, domination, imperial domination and expansion, particularly on the side of the, Brit on the, side of the Russians in the uh, Iranian north. And one should bear in mind that Iran for close to a century and a half possibly uh, had close border with uh, Russia and then shortly after the, the 1917 with the Soviet Union and in all this period, including the Cold War in the decades after the Second World War, from the end of the Second World War onward, up to the collapse of the Soviet Union, has been the subject of the rivalry between the two great powers. First with the British, up to the end of the First World War, and then with the rise of the, uh, uh, with the, rise of the uh, United States as a superpower after the Second World War. So, uh, there are every reason in terms of uh, uh, frontiers and in terms of pressure on its frontiers that the survival of Iran could have been uh, uh, completely uh, subject to all these major forces. Uh, also, it could have been argued that domestically Iran has been a very volatile uh, politically speaking, country. Uh, first of all, if you look at the Iranian terrain, it's a land with many mountainous uh, uh, regions. It has vast deserts. And in a sense, much, much of its communities before the 20th century, before the emergence of modern communication, were dispersed, were basically a kind of a system that uh, by and large was extremely difficult for a pre-modern state to dominate. That's why Iran basically up to perhaps the rise of uh, the Pahlavi dynasty in the 1920s was a country that as its title, as official title indicated was uh, the guarded domains of Iran, or as it was at the time, the guarded domains of Persia, Mamalik Mahruse Iran. So it was not referred to as one nation state, but as a kind of an imperial notion of many uh, entities that were brought 
under a loose control of a central government in a kind of a, uh, a, in a, a fashion that to some extent would allow many of these uh, local powers uh, to have a degree of uh, semi-autonomy and yet at the same time the central state would have maintained a degree of control over its provinces, over all these various semi-autonomous regions, Kurdistan, Khurasan, Fars, all these major provinces in the peripheries of Iran, all were basically ruled by this uh, semi-autonomous fashion. And this goes back in time. It's actually probably an invention if we don't want to uh, really go the path of ultranationalism, but as a matter of fact, it is the invention of the Sasanian Empire, perhaps a Achaemenid Empire, that created this whole system of uh, degree of autonomy to, to its uh, subjects and provinces. Beyond that, the periphery of Iran, as many of, some of you may remember, even as late as the middle of the 20th century, was pretty much dominated by a nomadic pastoralist tribal uh, entities from the Qashqais and the Bakhtiaris and the Shah Sabans and the Kohkiluye Mamasani, all these various tribes of the lower background, tribes of Khurasan and so forth. If you look at the map of the 19th century, you would be surprised to see how powerful <laughs> were these entities in the provinces or in the frontiers mostly of Iran, and how significant a role they played in basically defining uh, Iran, or in effect the political destiny of Iran was ransomed by the presence of these powers. Of course, we have to be very careful. If there are some anthropologists here, they would tell you that, the, uh, that these uh, tribal entities, they all can be considered as a kind of a center by themselves vis-a-vis -vis the central government in Tehran or in the other provincial centers. But nevertheless, this was, as it has been uh, ever since perhaps 11th century onwards, these tribal powers always played a very important part as they came to take over the power of the central government, including the Rajars themselves, to some extent the Safavids. The Safavids, although were pretty much the actual dynasty were urbanized, or to some extent urbanized, it was backed by these great Turkish forces that came and paid their homage and loyalty to the Safavids, the Qazalbash, the red-headed tribes, or imagined tribes, who came to the service of the Safavids. So in that regard, also, there is an internal tension in uh, the system between the, what may be called the periphery and the center. And that goes back, if you, uh, uh, if you are interested, for instance, in Shahnameh of Ferdowsi, you would see this division between the, uh, uh, the center and periphery is already there. It's references to boom or bar. Boom is always a reference to the center. Bar is always a reference to the frontier or Marzo boom that Persians would use as a term in reference to their, to their land, but 
uh, nevertheless, there is a distinction between the frontier and the center. Uh, okay, uh, <coughs> the first one, which I missed to point out, also is a trend that if you go back into mythology of Iran, is also is present. There is always a Iran, and there is always an Aniran. There is a land ah, in uh, Pahlavi means none. So Aniran, the land which is not Iran, usually associated with Turan uh, in its northwestern uh, uh, mythological geography of the Shahnameh. And that also is a kind of representative of, the t of this tension from the uh, from abroad with uh, the land of Iran. So there is a, always a distinction of Iran as an entity, and there is always a distinction of Iran as a frontier. Uh, back to the idea of how this book was written, if we started with the point of departure and a little bit looked at how these major themes in the history of Iran persisted, more or less up to the 20th century, and I would like to go back to that as well. Uh, this question of methodology always preoccupied me. Anybody who wants to write a long history or a history of a long period of time has to deal with this. Uh, there is a famous saying by Arnold Toynbee, a famous historian in the first part of the 20th century. These days, probably nobody reads his book, The Study of History. But once it was very popular, at least in my youth, it was one of the things that seemed to be some kind of a key to the understanding of world history, when these things were very popular. Um, he says somewhat mockingly about his own book, once he was asked that how you approach the history of uh, this vast civilization, rise and fall of these civilizations. He said one history is nothing but one damned fact after another. So that may be indeed the case. We write history as one damned thing after another. That's the destiny of the historians. But the Perhaps the important thing is to try to come up with some kind of a pattern that would make sense of how these events over this long period of time make sense. And that is also with the arrival of deconstructionism uh, in 20th century has been also questioned. When I started teaching at Yale, uh, the history department was a uh, solid follower of this tradition of historiography that believed in this kind of a Cartesian idea of the uh, thesis and synthesis that you have to have some idea, you have to have some conclusions. Nowadays, most historians of a younger generation have questions about that kind of overarching arguments. And that makes our job a little bit more difficult. Uh, it made my job easier, I must say, um, in the sense that I tried not to write a political history only, not to write also a socioeconomic history, which was very popular to write in the 1960s and 70s and perhaps up to 1980s. 
I tried not to write a diplomatic history either. And I tried to, in effect, combine all of this and break the barriers between these various genres of history, economic history, political history, social history, and indeed cultural history, which is, I think, one aspect of this book that distinctly may be different from other accounts that very capably written by other historians. Here I have tried to blend into my narrative a great deal about the cultural life of Iran, both the high culture and the popular culture, both the material culture and the literary and artistic aspects of Iran's uh, very rich history. So in a sense, I blended it because the political history of Iran over the past 500 years, with very few exceptions, is a sad history. It's a tragic history, in a sense. Uh, what I've used in my uh, introduction, in my preface, uh, ref a reference to Furugh Farrokhzad verse um, uh, that uh, it's uh, translated as the, a sorrowful uh, a stroll in the garden of memory. Gardeshi hoznalud dar This memory in this Iranian context is very important. It's very lasting. These ideas that Iran, over a long period of time, incorporated in it in its psyche at the expense of saying this kind of things that historians may question. But it became part and parcel of this sense of Iran's view of the past, of which actually the idea of decline becomes more and more stronger in the course of the 19th and 20th century. As Iran becomes in, uh, uh, exposed to European powers, and witnessed its military, uh, economic, technological advances, this sense that Iran is no longer is the center of the world, and it's no longer a powerful empire that it was always proud of, but as a, in a sense a marginalized nation that it's sitting between two great empires in the 19th century. So, Culture plays an important part in how I try to put this story together. Not only because Iran has a rich culture, but also because it's a key in many respects to try to understand a more uh, subtle and the less accessible dimensions of Iran's history that the political uh, uh, historiography does not provide us with, particularly poetry. Poetry, as you might know, is a very dear and a very important part of Persian language and development of Persian language and culture for centuries. But it also carries a message with it beyond its literary beauty. If you read it against the grain, particularly in more modern poetry, you would find always a message that can be defined as a message of dissent or a message of protest. And that also in the 19th century, early 20th century, certainly after the Constitutional Revolution, and more so in the decades after 1950s, 
with the new poetry uh, uh, more and more adopted a kind of a political message of dissent, political message of disillusionment and resentment against the failures that Iran witnessed over the course of the two and a half revolutions, one might say, uh, from the Constitutional Revolution, the period of the national uh, uh, movement of the 1940s uh, uh, and 50s, that's usually referred to as the Mossadegh era, and an attempt to try to reassert Iran's economic sovereignty, and of course the revolution of 1979. So in this respect also, Poetry has a place uh, in, in, in the way that we can speak somewhat a language, as I would call it, a kind of a personalized interpretation of history. Uh, again, uh, a verse from uh, Rumi comes to mind, uh, although I don't claim that I've been as anarchistic as he is in his putting the stories together. But uh, he has a very famous verse uh, in the story of uh, the in the story of Moses and the uh, shepherd uh, boy. How many of you have read that story? Okay, fair enough. Sure, that God says uh, to Moses to say to the uh, shepherd boy, I leave you to actually read the whole story on your own. Hech tartibiyo adabi majui. That says, don't seek any arrangements or formalities. Say whatever you, your sorrowed heart desires. As a matter of fact, something of that motivational aspect so some is also reflected in this, uh, in this book. As I said in its preface, it's a history with attitude. And many people ask me, what do you mean by that? <laughs> what is history with attitude? And I think part of it is that what your sorrowful heart would tell you, you would reflect. And that is, as I said, probably my order is not, I still think that there is an order in this book. But this idea was in my mind when I was reading it, when I was writing it, and uh, nowadays when I read it. Okay. <laughs> Also, writing this kind of a long durée in European history, particularly in the middle decades of the 20th century, became very popular in the French school, called School of Annals. These are the historians that paid a great deal of attention to the long-term processes that happened, particularly in the economy, in the material culture of European, French in particular, Spanish and French around the Mediterranean. These are uh, attracted much attention by very remarkable historians of that time. Brodel is probably the most well-known example of that uh, school. And that I've, been, I've been interested and influenced to some extent by the, by the trends that the Anal School has produced. Yet there is a difference. In the Annals school, you don't see very many men. You see things. You see uh, trends of economy. Uh, you see the change in the material culture in terms of the trade and the commodities, the technology, the development of technology, how the ships were built, uh, how it was different 
the way that it was built in Europe, with the way that it was built in China in the 16th century that brought about a revolution in uh, navigation and indeed provided all the grounds for the European powers to take advantage and create a global network with the Portuguese and the Spaniards and the Dutch and the British all basically benefited from that. Yes, these are very important. But for me also humans are very important. So I also tried to blend into this some kind of, uh, one might say, uh, uh, biographical details about quite a number of figures. Every few pages you come across somebody. And it's fun to write about individuals because you can take all your revenge against them and write, particularly if they are not alive. Uh, I try to be a little bit more careful for those who are still uh, be, be with us. Uh, and again, this is the third. As I told you, uh, Rumi must have been preoccupied on how to organize his own six books of Masnavi. So again, the same introduction, he says, Behtaran Boshad Kesere Digaran Gufta Oyad Dar Hadise Inu On. So translation, the secret of the beloved is best to be told in the stories of the others. So by giving some kind of a biographical details, there is an attempt to try to follow these long-term trends. If you write about the life of Abbas I, Shah Abbas, if you write about the life of Nadir, or the life of Qurratul Ain, or the life of Muhammad Reza Shah, all of these figures appear, uh, more significant of all of them, of course, Reza Shah, appear throughout the pages of, of this account. And uh, in this respect, I hope that I have been able to provide uh, a certain complexity in terms of trends in economic and political long-term trends, as well as the life of the individuals, and make it much more tangible, writing about poets, writing, writing about, uh, to the extent that it was possible, about painters, musicians, and a number of figures that I think really is one of the greatest achievements of Iran over the past 500 years or its longer history, as a matter of fact. Now, how much time do we have? Half an hour. Half an hour. Oh, good. All right. Uh, so let us, uh, after talking about this kind of preliminaries, it's, you are not, I hope I'm not making you worried about the fact that it's, we are in the preliminaries still. But <laughs> I thought one way of approaching this after many attempts uh, to try to uh, talk as, as compact as possible is to try to really read in reverse about the history of Iran, not to start from 1501, but actually to start from seven, 1979. The question that my editor put to me first. There are certain characteristics in the revolution of 1979. Although it eventually adopted the rubric of an Islamic revolution, it was much more than that. For one thing, 
It is a revolution that from the perspective of a historian comes after, as I pointed out, two, one, two perhaps one and a half or two revolutions earlier on. Uh, and it's very few countries in the world that experience two revolutions in the course of one century. Perhaps the only other country that comes to my mind is China, which in many respects actually shares the same issues as Iran does. It's a country that maintains its sovereignty in a very difficult time in the most precarious way, as Iran did. And it's a country that also goes through a, relatively speaking, a liberal constitutional revolution at the beginning of the century and the, in the 1940s, 1947, 48. The uh, uh, communist revolution that brought Mao and uh, the communist regime to power in, in China. And Iran did not happen, but it could have been happened. I mean, along the same lines, Iran could have witnessed the same kind of a destiny. Uh, the question is that, why is it that uh, Iran faces this long-term revolution, this long-term kind of a convulsion, convulsions that leads to, to a revolution? Uh, if you look at the objectives of the constitutional revolution in the early 20th century, there are several. It's one, liberal democracy, the creation of a more plural uh, 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 popular representation, uh, parliament and constitution, uh, equality before the law, a sense of a social justice, all of these grand um, uh, uh, objectives that the constitutional revolution in it other, uh, I would say, innocently presented at that time. I would call it an innocent revolution compared to many of the bloody and violent revolutions. Constitutional revolution had a much more, a much more uh, uh, kind of a dear and innocent aspect into it. Anybody who reads any of the narratives of that period uh, probably would agree with me. Or perhaps that's how I would glorify it. Uh, it also looked for a sense of social justice that it's uh, in effect reflected in the idea that Iranian society is suffering from backwardness and decline vis-a-vis uh, European powers because it is uh, uh, the means of progress has been uh, denied to, to Iran, uh, of which uh, probably the ideas such as public education, uh, more centralization of the state, uh, more, uh, uh, in a sense, accountability of the state to the citizens were all part and parcel of it. I'm sure there are here many that know more about many aspects of this. But uh, this set of ideas that were not necessarily very political uh, sometimes took the, ad, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, advantage, or I'm sorry, not the advantage, but took a much more of an important place than the idea of political reform and uh, uh, democratic 
institutions as Iran more and more faced in the years after 1911 uh, or actually from 1906 onward uh, uh, the pressure from the European powers on its frontiers. It's interesting to see that the revolution, constitutional revolution of 1906 to 1911 coincided with the famous secret agreement of 1907 between the two powers, between the Russia and Britain that actually divided in Iran in a polite language into zones of influence. And that led uh, in the years following to basically the collapse of the, uh, at least the political objectives of the constitutional revolution. Uh, it brought about the occupation of the whole of northern Iran by Russia, literally from 1909 onwards, 1908 onwards really, during the civil war uh, between the nationalists, between the uh, constitutionalists and the royalists. Uh, Russia became very supportive of uh, the uh, government in power, the Qajar dynasty, as opposed to the um, uh, Iranian constitutionalists. This is one aspect that uh, we would see contributed to this desire, particularly in the course of the First World War, for the greater stability, for basically a trade-off between democratization of Iran and the stabilization of Iran. As Iran witnessed more and more pressure economically in a terrible state by uh, its econo economy basically was shattered because of foreign occupation and because of the internal turmoil, famine, uh, uh, diseases, uh, that probably destroyed more than at least one-fifth of Iran's population of 10 million at the time. Uh, so these are disasters and the fear that soon Iran is going to be divided between these two zones of influence. And particularly the discovery of oil in the Khuzestan province in the south further uh, served as an incentive for the British government to actually put a greater uh, um, uh, emphasis on the protection of southern provinces of Iran, not only the Persian Gulf, which always was considered as part of the master plan of preservation of the Indian Empire, uh, British Empire in India, but also the new oil resources that it was discovered all around the same time, 1908. Constitutional Revolution is 1906. The, the, uh, the agreement between the two parties is 1907. The discovery of oil is 1908. It's an incredible coincidence. That did not work in Iran's favor. Well, it worked in certain respects. It did not work in other respects. Uh, perhaps by 1917, that's again something very remarkable. If it wasn't because of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, perhaps Iran would have been actually uh, uh, fragmented or divided between the two powers. It was just a miracle that the 1917 revolution in Russia, which has such a bad press uh, <laughs> over the course of time, in Iran was welcomed greatly as a, a, a liberating force. And of course, the fact that many of the concessions were given in the 19th century 
by the Rajar government was were repealed, uh, and as a matter of uh, uh, kind of Iran uh, welcomed what was happening in Russia before knowing what is going on inside. You know, as an idea from the outside. So, uh, saying all of that. Uh, these uh, trends in the constitutional revolution that favored a more stabilized, more strong central state welcomed the rise of a kind of a savior type in the person of Reza Khan, who basically had a message, if you want a strong state, forget about democracy, but allow us, me and my cohorts and supporters, and the military officers who supported him to try to fulfill the, uh, uh, the non-political uh, objectives of the Constitutional Revolution. It's not a surprise to see that throughout the 1920s and 30s, Reza Shah in a very systematic fashion, Reza Khan and then Reza Shah, a very systematic fashion basically materializes much that has been said in the Constitution, has, that has been desired in the Constitutional Revolution. Public education, number one. This is modern education in the form of modern schools. Uh, better communication with the Trans-Iranian Railroad, creation of a network of roads that made the power of the center much easier available, uh, much easier exerted in the provinces. Uh, creation of a united army that happened in the earlier years of the Reza Shah era. And uh, uh, for that matter, creation of a modern judiciary system in the European model, a modern financial system by creating a more centralized taxation that earlier on had failed, several attempts that were made. Well, the question is, is this all the ingenuity of Reza Khan that brought about all of this change, or what happened that made this a successful effort? Partly, it's due, not entirely, because in history it's hardly very difficult to say that there's one factor that brought about the success or failure of one or the other uh, uh, regime or uh, a project. In this case, uh, perhaps uh, the fact that uh, uh, Iran uh, started to benefit from around 1920-21 a portion of the revenue from the Anglo-Persian Anglo oil company, although the majority of it went to the uh, company and to the British. 16% uh, of course even that 16% was, was questionable how much of it the Iranian government really received. But whatever it received, it was important in financing this process of centralization. Not the only one. As some probably would know, the Trans-Iranian Railroad was created by taxation on sugar and on, on tobacco uh, and tea that people paid individually in order to make, this make it possible. But nevertheless, the uh, revenue from the oil resources of Iran is the beginning of what we, I would call an extracting economy, an economy that depends on the resources from underground, natural resources, in this, scale in this case petroleum, 
that allows the state to create much stronger uh, apparatus for control, much more powerful state than ever Iran had seen in the past. And as a matter of fact, not only a greater degree of reform from the top, but a greater degree of repression from the top. So that's the great dichotomy or the, or, uh, or the duality of the uh, early Pahlavi period. For that matter, the entire Pahlavi period. That on the one hand, it's the reforms from the top. On the other hand, it's repression from the top. And uh, this duality greatly over the course of the 20th century from the 1920s to 1990s, 1970s, with the revolution of 1979 was there, and of course afterwards, from what we see. This strong state is still there. There is not much of a change in that regard between the Pahlavi state and the Islamic Republic. Still benefits from the natural resources for not being accountable to its own subjects, to its own people, to its own citizens. Still manages to bring about a degree of stability within the country that probably it's missing from many of its neighbors. So in that regard, it's also the same characteristic of the Pahlavi era. But the, this did not answer the question, and that's the last point I would like to make. What kind of a chemistry allowed that kind of a transformation from a seemingly very powerful Pahlavi centralized state uh, to what we see as the rise of a popular revolution in 1979, which brought millions of people in the street saying death to the Shah and to the Pahlavi regime. The answer to that is rather complex. But in a few sentences, if I just want to sum it up, one is the fact that part of the Pahlavi attempt, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, to try to modernize the Iranian um, uh, social uh, and uh, educational system was a greatly was at the expense of the religious establishment of Iran. Remember that in most, uh, one of the major themes in the history of Iran is this uh, collaboration or uh, alliance or symbiosis between the religious establishment and the state. There's an old theory that goes back to the Sasanian era that the state and the religious establishment are twin sisters, that's usually referred to. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the cover of, no, I cannot move around. <laughs> Can you bring me a copy of that book? Okay, there we are. First, some damage, okay. All right, uh, this is uh, from the, one of the uh, arch verandas of the Vakil Mosque in uh, Shiraz. Uh, and that was actually built not in the Zan period, but in the early Rajar period under Fatali Shah, this particular tile work that you see. It's a very curious one because you cannot see very many pictorial images in the tile work of uh, the uh, earlier times. Here you see there are two trees that are intertwined here in the center of in the, this beautiful uh, uh, tile work that you see. Well, it can Im be interpreted in many ways. Who knows what the artist wanted to do or his patron asked him to do, which was actually one of the princes 
after Fatalishah royal family who ruled over the Fars province, Hossein Ali Mirza. And, but it can be interpreted that this duality of the state and the religious establishment, had, had being in the middle uh, and the major entrance into the uh, Moscow Vakil. May I? Okay then. But it can also be interpreted as this kind of dualities about which I've talked. The duality between the center and periphery, the duality between, the, uh, between uh, Iran and an Iran, non-Iran, duality or uh, tension between the, uh, between the religious establishment and the political authority. Or for that matter, one that I haven't had much chance to talk about, between the court and the administration, the dargah and divan, or between the kings and ministers. This is an unresolved problem in the Iranian political culture that in certain respects persisted up to the present. If you look at the case of Mossadegh versus the Shah is a very good example of that in the 1950s. If you look back, the more uh, severe example is the example of Amir Kabir versus Nasiruddin Shah and how the ministerial power eventually was eliminated or subordinated by, by the power of the court. And how you would see even today the same phenomenon persists. All these disgraced prime ministers and uh, presidents of the Islamic Republic, one after the other, uh, in a sense are representing that kind of an executive power that, it's, uh, uh, that cannot act uh, independently and with a certain sovereignty from the power of the supreme uh, leader who claims this kind of a divine authority. As the kings of the Iranian past have always claimed that there is a charisma that has been uh, uh, granted to them from a divine source. That kind of attention remained unresolved. And Iran is not the only country. Most of Europe in pre-modern times resulted in revolutions, to, to, including the French Revolution, to be resolved. But in the Iranian case, that seems to be a very powerful factor. But that was not the answer to the point that I raised earlier on. The process of modernization in the Pahlavi era, particularly in the early Pahlavi era, basically uh, marginalized the religious establishment that had a great prestige, influence, presence ever since the Safavid period. This is an invention basically of the Safavid empire and that's part of the reason why we go back so early to talk about the establishment of Shism and the creation of the Mujtahid establishment in Iran ever since the 16th century. By 20th century, Reza Shah basically took away from the religious establishment not only the educational system that was their monopoly, it was only the madrasas who would be able to educate people in sciences generally referred to as religious sciences. It took away from them the judiciary with all the courts that was almost entirely, at least the civil law, was under the control of the religious establishment. It took away from them much of their uh, religious endowments, that is the Oghaf, that for a very long time, ever since the Safavid period, has, was specified, was earmarked for the pres preservation of religious 
institutions that were under the control of the uh, uh, religious establishment, and finally their control over the mosques. Uh, in effect, uh, basically, there are so many forms of uh, uh, competition to the uh, congregation of the mosques that gradually lost its uh, centrality, particularly for the Iranian middle classes. As the Pahlavi political, as the Pahlavi educational system basically created a new class of secular middle, a new secular middle class, particularly in the bigger cities, that were not so loyal or, or, or uh, bound with the idea of, uh, of uh, the uh, mosque and religious uh, establishment. However, these all, in a sense, added to the isolation of uh, the, what they were referred to now as Rouhaniyun, uh, and give, push them back into their madrasas. In addition to that, gave them uh, a new weapon, in effect, as opposed to the, uh, the reforming Pahlavi uh, 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 state, by uh, appealing to a, first of all, to the bazaar that also was a partial victim of Pahlavi modernization. As the economy of the bazaar became greatly affected by the introduction of new industries, by the introduction of new trade, uh, that part of it, although was it still physically within the bazaar, but it was not contributing to the economy of the bazaar. So as I would refer, this is another major dichotomy in Iranian history, the relationship between the mosque, and uh, between the uh, maidan, the square, and the bazaar. Maidan usually in the control of the state, bazaar in the, uh, in the control of the merchant class. This tension was further uh, accelerated in the Pahlavi period, and as a result, brought a greater uh, 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 alliance, if you like to call it, between those uh, uh, classes within the bazaar, particularly the lower ranks within the bazaar, who were not the beneficiary of the Pahlavi state, who came to uh, support uh, the religious establishment in the decades after the Second World War in particular. So we would see that already there is a ground for greater mobilization beyond the madrasa and the small group of the religious seminarians, the tolab, who no longer belonged, much of them, to the bigger cities, but came from the smaller cities or from the countryside, from the villages. They were very different. These people who are now, you will see, in power, many of them were the product of this uh, lower middle classes, uh, less privileged classes that still had an appeal for them to send their children uh, to, to madrasa, which in effect, if you look back a decade earlier or two, you see many of the children of the mujtahids, high-ranking mujtahids, of the aristocracy of the religious establishment, changed and became, you know, mukalla, you see. They changed their religious dress and became modernized and came to the bureaucracy of the state. This shift also played a very important part for allowing the message of militancy of 
the mosques now to be, to be expressed to a larger audiences that uh, the, uh, that the, uh, uh, that the mullahs, uh, if generally would refer to them, found in the, mostly in the margins of the cities when most of the people uh, from the countryside emigrated to the cities. Why they came to the cities? That was also the result of a major development in the latter part of the 20th century, the land reform that not only eliminated the landed, landlord classes that were the backbone in certain respect of the Pahlavi regime, but also the surplus population of the countryside who no longer could sustain this growing population of the uh, villages to move into the cities for a better life. If you have the literary uh, core, the Sepahe Danesh, and you have the health core that goes to the countryside, the outcome of it is a better rate of child survival, larger population, antibiotics, clinics, more doctors, and therefore a growth in the population. Iran, in terms of a demographic change, actually witnessed a demographic uh, revolution in the course of the 1960s to 1990s to 2000, really, that included the revolution. So this provided that kind of a multitudes that could listen in the mosques, in the margins of the big cities to the message of the uh, religious establishment. A message that no longer could be establishment, anti-establishment as a matter of fact. A message that was largely tinkered together from the ideologies of the left from the ideologies of anti-Westernism that Iran internalized as a result of the experiences of the First World War, the Second World War, the coup of 1953, all of this in, in, in effect bound up in order to create this narrative of anti-Westernism of which comes the great Satan and death to America of the revolutionary times. So the ideology, is an ideology that is the product of people like Shariati, uh, Al Ahmad, probably some of the ideologies of the extreme left or the guerrilla movements that were active in Iran and indeed revitalized the kinds, kind of secularized the sense of sacrifice and victimization and, 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 and martyrdom. And that actually was glorified further in the course of the revolution as it was more incorporated into the message of the religious establishment who very successfully managed to incorporate all of this to their own message and appeal almost instantaneously in the course of the revolution. Why it managed to actually uh, succeed vis-a-vis -a, -vis a very powerful state, that was the Pahlavi state, is, in my opinion, as I have tried to argue in this book, is largely due to, to the fact, if not entirely, largely due to the fact that the Pahlavi regime, in my opinion, rather unwisely, foolishly, closed all the other possible uh, avenues of uh, uh, secular moderate opposition in the course, particularly after 1953 onwards. So reliance with the 
with the support of the United States partly, reliance on uh, the sense of self-adulation or uh, glorification of the monarchy led to this kind of a greater alienation of a population that even the security services of the Shah's era, including the Savak, basically ignored. Or if it paid any attention, it was always marginalized by this grand image of the monarchy and the Shah himself, about which uh, Dr. Midani has written much more extensively than I did. These, in effect, left the mosques as the only possible alternative for expression of political dissent, for any kind of a protest, for reflection of a sense of dissatisfaction that, relatively speaking, like every th everything else, is just relative. People in the Pahlavi era wanted more housing, more schools, better uh, standard of life. And in effect, all of this reflected in these mass movements that came about and the memory of the revolution that had remained unanswered for close to a whole century. Thank you. As you can see, the title of my talk is In Search of Modern Iran. It's actually rather uh, curious that at the end of the talk, I'm saying what is the title. Uh, and I called it The Challenges and Rewards of Writing About Half a Millennium of Iranian History. You heard some of it. So this was the initial title of the book. My publisher decided that it's not uh, strong enough. So they convinced me that it should be Iran and modern history. So, uh, but the theme is the same. As a matter of fact, it has a subtitle of authority, memory, and nationhood, which I thought is a nice combination. But they also said, these days, no subtitle. Is it on or is it? Oh, it's just now. Okay. Um, you, well, I start from really Qajar era onwards. Uh, one of the earliest images that you can see here is uh, shows Aga Muhammad Khan in the famous battle, uh, uh, the famous uh, campaign in uh, Kerman when he virtually destroyed the remnants of the Zan dynasty in a very brutal fashion in which there's a story about 70,000 people were blinded, or at least, if not 70,000 people. A large number were victims of that, because Kerman was considered as a pro-Zand uh, city. Uh, here is, you, you can see him with the crown that was actually, at the time, he didn't have, but the painter um, uh, actually granted him the Kiani Tran at the, at, the, at the time. I brought this in in order to uh, emphasize the sense of the center versus periphery. Once a power establishes in the center, it has the job of basically pacifying the periphery. Reza Shah did the same, perhaps not with the same degree of brutality, but with a much stronger modernized army. The same as about here, you would see Aga Muhammad Khan Qajar. Antaji Ibrahimi Kalantar, uh, Shirazi Etamad Dole, who was the former, uh, the first uh, um, equivalent of prime minister, the chief minister, the Sadr Azam of Aga Muhammad Khan. I brought this in order to show you this 
interaction between the center, between the kingship and the divan, as the chief minister representing the administration of the state and the king representing the uh, total authority military usually, but it's also associated with this long tradition of Persian kingship, the Shahanshahi, that also the Qajars quickly adopted after Ahmad Khan. Here you can see that this is Fatali Shah on his throne in a rock carving in Cheshme Ali near Ray in southern Tehran when he's actually surrounded by some of the princes of the royal family at the right and the left who are um, uh, in a sense representing the state in this uh, guarded domain of Iran in various provinces including Abbas Mirza as being one of them who was the um, viceroy of the Azerbaijan province uh, in the north. You see also, is it this one for pointing at? Oh yes, here it is. You see also the authority of the chief minister here being shown on, on the right. So it always has a place. And remember, this is the time that the rock relief for the first time was reintroduced to Iran ever since the Sasanian era. There are very, very few rock reliefs of this Islamic period because of the ban on producing images. And as a matter of fact, as you can see here, the showing of the prime minister versus the king is an old idea that also comes from the, uh, from the Sasanic period. Uh, the presence of the religious establishment uh, as two examples that I wanted to show you, they were generally are not pictured in the service of the ruler because they maintained a certain distance from the state and was considered any kind of a service to the state as an anathema. Nevertheless, they were supporters of the state. There, there was a kind of a um, de facto division of labor between the state and the religious establishment. The one on the left is Mullah Muhammad Baghir Majlisi, the famous theologian of the late Safavid period, responsible for actually popularization of Shiism in the course of the 18th century. And on the right is the famous Mujtahid uh, of Isfahan, Mullah Muhammad Baghir Shafti, known as Hujjatul Islam, before the days that the title of Hujjatul Islam was debased to the level that it is now. He was the only Hujjatul Islam was known in the Shi world at the time. And even then, some of his colleagues would, were angry with the, uh, uh, with the uh, introduction of this title, which previously was that of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam. He was enormously powerful in the age of golden age of mushtahids, as it's sometimes been referred to in the late Fatali Shah and throughout the Muhammad Shah era. And the state patronage of religious institutions here in the city of Kashan, uh, you can see two examples. The one on the left, the one on the left is the Sultani Madrasa um, built uh, by the order of Fatali Shah, commissioned by Haji Muhammad Hussein Sadr Isfahani, the famous uh, chief minister of uh, Fatali Shah era, era during the period of uh, reconstruction of Iran after the wars of the 18th centuries. Again, another aspect that very many people don't want to give credit to the Qajars with massive uh, agricultural projects, that, uh, uh, massive architectural projects that they carried. 
That's one example of it, 1814. The one on the right is the magnificent Agha Bozurg Mosque in Madrasa in Kashan, commissioned by the order of Muhammad Shah in honor of the Naragi family, particularly Agha Muhammad Mahdi and Naragi around 1814, completed around 1849. As an, another homage to the significance of the religious class as it was I, as it was respected and acknowledged by the state. Or examples of, uh, 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 of popularization of Shiism. As you can see in this fresco, uh, the story of Karbala in Takiyeh Moshir in Shiraz in 1870s, unfortunately now in the state of despair under the Islamic Republic, believe it or not. Some of the uh, tiles apparently from what I know has been stolen. Uh, from this very, very famous attack here in Shiraz. Um, this is significant because, as a matter of fact, one can identify a distinction between uh, the high uh, Shiism of the madrasa and the ulama and the study of jurisprudence and the sharia and the low, or I don't want to use, more popular form of Shiism in which the stories of the, uh, of uh, Hussein uh, uh, and Karbala were central. And it's usually out of this tradition that you see many of movements of dissent in the early, uh, earlier period shaped. For instance, we can see that uh, many of the origins of the Babi movement in the 19th century goes back really to this more popular, passionate, uh, martyrdom tradition of uh, Shiism that was very somewhat distinct from the religion of the Mujtahids. By the early 19th century, as you can see in this uh, painting by a Persian painter un, un, uh, unknown, uh, showing Fath Ali Shah receiving gift from Captain John Malcolm and his mission in Tehran in 1800. That's the first uh, mission in the course of the 19th century that were sent by the British government, actually by the East India Company in in, in uh, India, in British India, to try to uh, strengthen relations with Qajar Iran at the time when still Qajar Iran had the prestige of being the most important power in the, in the region. And the British felt that the support of the Qajars were quite important for greater stability in the peripheries of uh, uh, colonial India. Um, the, uh, idea of the Iran versus an Iran, as you can see in this painting from Shahanshah Nameh of uh, Fath Ali Khan Saba that was composed in the age of uh, Fath Ali Shah, uh, shows Fath Ali Shah in battle with the Russians. This is the, the, one of the campaigns that were fought in 1805 in which Iran was relatively successful. And this was very much glorified in the narrative of the Qajar period. Uh, uh, this was the real an Iran for Iran at this time. And what was the outcome? And there are several paintings about this particular episode in the book. I just showed one of, one of them here. This is uh, at the time when Iran defeated in the war with Russia the second round. And the Treaty of Turkmenistan was concluded as a result of which Iran was supposed to bear war indemnity to Russia in millions of rubles that basically bankrupt the Iranian regime and bankrupt its very uh, credit 
in, uh, in terms of its political legitimacy. What you'll see here, there is, a, there is a scale hanging from the ceiling. This is gold being weighed in the presence of the representatives of Tazaris Russia and Iranian representatives on the other side, then packed here and sent off to St. Petersburg. So uh, it's very moving. There's a whole set of these paintings, okay? This shows, uh, they, I try to show you something of the uh, contrast between the Maidan and the Bazaar. This is, of course, as many of you recognize, this Maidan in Aqsh Jahan, which today misappropriated as Maidan Khomeini um, uh, against all Islamic restrictions of not renaming a, a charity endowment in a different name. Uh, so you see this is a painting of the 17th century, shows a very different kind of an arrangement as you can see from the bazaar in which you have the Dolat Khane or Ali Rapu on the, on the left, you have the uh, Royal Chapel of Lutfali, Sheikh Lutfullah on the right, and the Shah Mosque here that we cannot see, and the entry to the bazaar here. So this kind of a combination of four elements was a symbolic kind of architecture of the period. More about that in the book. That's what it is today. That's a replication of that in Tehran. When the Qajars built the mosque, Shah Mosque, that again was uh, renamed as the Khomeini Mosque in today's Iran, in the entrance to the Tehran Bazaar, uh, and basically functioning the two sides on the one side is the entrance to the mosque and eventually leading into the bazaar. Uh, and on the other side is the Sabze Maidan that you would see the representation of the state here. This is the entry to the Arg of Tehran in around 1840s. And with the new army that was trained in order to provide some new defenses, modern defenses for Iran against the threats mostly of the Russians, but also the interiors. Uh, the economy, the change of the economy is also very remarkable in this period. Uh, Iran gradually shifted in its greater incorporation into the world economy to try to provide some commodities in order to be able to sell to the international market, and of which tobacco and opium were the most important. Opium was the, was the biggest uh, uh, revenue earner for Iran in the, in the 19th century. Much of it was exported, some for medicinal purposes to Europe, but much of it was actually exported to China as a result of the famous uh, British, uh, uh, British uh, opium wars in China that opened the markets for the import of opium into China and greater addiction for the general public. Iranians, uh, as you can see here, there was a whole industry of uh, processing the opium. This is the raw uh, puppies that were turned into a, uh, uh, the kind of a processed tariyak in order to be able to opium to be sold to the international market in which Europeans played a part, important part, 
This I always thought is a British guy, but it turned out to be a Frenchman. <laughs> and the uh, Constitutional Revolution of 1906, uh, I included this one to show you how much the popular involvement in the revolution was contrary to virtually any other revolutions in the Middle East in, at that time. The Young Turks Revolution or 1919 in Egypt or whatever, none of them had that kind of a representation of the ordinary people showing up and demanding. This one of all the places is happening the British legation in Tehran in 19 July of 1906. Uh, it's a postcard uh, at the time became popular to try to produce this postcard. This one, as the, of the, as you can see, is the Claudier Guild, Senfe Bazaz, as it was in the 1906 century, or after the defeat of the royalists and uh, the uh, success, one of the very few successes of the constitutionalists in the Civil War of 1908-1909, when they took over Tehran, as you can see at the top, it says Sarbazan Meli Tehran. These were the three forces, the Qashqais, the, uh, the forces from Gilan, and the forces from Tabriz that were actually brought together in order to provide a certain degree of uh, discipline in the revolutionary Tehran of 1909. And at the top of it, it says Payandebad Majlis Shurai Meli, Zendebad Sarbazan Meli. Um, long lives the Majlis, uh, uh, the uh, National uh, Constituent Assembly, and long live the uh, National Soldiers of Iran. I wanted to use this as the cover of my book. My, my publisher didn't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and of course, the rise of Reza Shah, already Reza Khan, uh, <laughs> the way that it kind of symbolically stands out uh, in the midst of all these groups of the, the man on his uh, left is Muhammad Hassan Mirza, the last, uh, uh, the last uh, 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 <laughs> the last of the. Um, Whatever, Crown of Prince. Crown Prince, thank you so much, of, of uh, Qajar period, and some of the uh, uh, courtiers of that time, is actually somewhat, the uh, contrast is very interesting, that this is a Cossack officer in a Cossack appearance, um, largely Cossack, he has somewhat changed after 1921, but still very military, in the midst of all this old Qajar uh, 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 nobility. And that is what brought to Iran that kind of uh, unification of a unified army, relatively unified. Because what you see here on the right, with the uh, uh, skin red, red cap, these are the gendarme forces that were not yet fully incorporated into the unified army of Iran. But the Cossacks, as you can see, some of the officers are still pretty much clad like the Cossacks, this is the, one of the four uh, armies that were, uh, Iran divided into four regions, there were four armies. This is the army of the south, Lashkar-e-Junub, that was responsible not only for the pacification of much of Luristan, much of the Bakhtiari, much of the Qashqai, but further south towards 
control of Iran of the entire Khuzestan. That's probably the greatest challenge in the early Pahlavi period and the great credit actually to Reza Shah that contrary to all the pressure by the British government of not doing so, took over uh, the Khuzestan province and in a sense was reassertion of the Iranian sovereignty over the south. Or the first public appearance of the unveiled women in Shiraz around 1930s, part of the cultural policies of uh, Reza Shah that virtually forced much of the uh, growing Iranian bureaucracy, uh, this, uh, the, uh, the uh, officers and as well as the civil servants to bring their women unveiled into a public gathering. That's the one in Shiraz very early. Or the theme of the reconstructed Iranian nationalism in Reza Shah period in which Nadir Shah, despite all these horrors that Iran witnessed in his era, uh, became a great hero and a savior of which Reza Khan basically was a revival, was a, 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 a based on the model of Reza Khan, in, of Nadir Shah, probably early Nadir Shah. What is somewhat interesting about this uh, painting, uh, of this uh, uh, pictorial rock from Ravar in uh, Kerman is the fact that some of you may recognize that everything about it is Qajar. This is basically Fat Ali Shah and his uh, throne of Takht uh, Tavus. But what has happened to uh, Fat Ali Shah is his head was actually decapitated and the head of Nadir Shah was placed instead. So this, in a sense, was a kind of a uh, humorous, uh, ironic way that the Qajars have now been uh, basically left out of the narrative of the early Pahlavi period. There is much more, but we don't have time. Thank you so much.